Well, our church didn't drink its V8 today. We're, you guys are all on the left side of the building. I guess I'll, I'll make my migration over here and talk to you people who showed tonight on the left side. Okay, thank you. We've got somebody here on the right side. Oh, on the south. Oh, I see. It's gone south. Tonight's message rhymes beautifully out of Isaiah 24 with Psalm 2, which says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah, his Mashiach, his anointed one, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Yet he who sits in the heavens laughs, the master, the Adonai, scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them with his fury, saying, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then that king speaks. He says, I surely will tell the decree of the Lord, of Yahweh. He said to me, you're my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall, and here's where it rhymes with Isaiah 24, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And given that statement of historic reality that is still future, that prophetic statement, of where it's all going, there's a wisdom response. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning. O judges of the earth, worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Yet how happy are all who take refuge in him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. To turn your Bibles tonight to Isaiah chapter 24, we will dig down a little deeper into something that we started last time we were together in one of the great, uh, great chunks of Isaiah, chapter 24 through 27, the little apocalypse of Isaiah. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, make sure we believers in Jesus Christ are in fellowship with God, and thereby being filled by the Holy Spirit with the Word of Christ, richly dwelling within us. We want God to have His way, and that means at times, all the time, we have to forsake any claim we have to having our way in independence of Him. Let's pray. Our Father, it is our birthright to proclaim your excellencies, to glorify and praise you because we have at our disposal, at our, at our at, at very moment, any moment, beck and call, we have joy inexpressible and, f- and full of glory because we have your Son. Father, we disregard him to our detriment. We lag, we waste time, we forget what life is really about because our attention is distracted and our priorities are dulled, and we thank you for the constant recourse back to you, to your word, to a walk with you through what you said. We bless you tonight, Father, because you have challenged us with the wonders and the beauty of Hebrew poetry and the richness of what Isaiah has done, and we ask that your spirit would strengthen us to know you through what the Prince of Prophets has said. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to uh, travel through some grim material tonight in Isaiah chapter 24. We looked at chapter 24 verses 1 through 20 two weeks ago and sort of surveyed it. And we asked the question, who wants to be miserable? And the answer is nobody, except, but, but most people tend to act like they do 
want to be miserable given the nature of reality and the God with whom we must deal. And so in that vein, since we're going into something grim and bleary and dark in terms of God's judgment on the nations and the earth dwellers in the coming tribulation in Isaiah chapter 24, verse 1 through 20, I thought I'd share with you something that I've shared before. And uh, it is about a bleary and dark time that was still a time of uh, evangelism where you had people that were still on mission, uh, even in what is now the United States. And of course, I'm talking about the works of Robert Service. And if you don't know Robert Service, uh, you should get to know Robert Service. He's an American poet, and um, he had really fun stories he would tell with his poetry. He was a prospector. He did many things in his career uh, during the gold rush and went to Alaska. And um, he didn't really strike it rich, but we did because he wrote such stories and made them rhyme. Uh, And this one I've shared with you before, but I think it's so fun. And Joel, if it doesn't work with the showing the screen, because I'm going to duplicate here, just let me uh, work with me on what I need to do. Can you see, can you all see what um, I'm showing there? This is called The Ballad of Salvation Bill, and I'll read it. You can read along uh, if you want. But it's a story about evangelism and addiction. (laughs) So I was in the bleary middle of the hard-boiled, oh, oh, and, and we're cold. It's cold here now. We've got, got our first snow in, and it's not going anywhere. It's still there, so that's fun. Uh, what is this, Hartford? It's still, still on the ground out there. Yeah, that's a good start. All right. It was in the bleary middle of the hard-boiled Arctic night. I was lonesome as a loon, so if you can, imagine my emotions of amazement and delight when I bumped into that missionary man. He was lying lost and dying in the moon's unholy leer and fro- frozen from his toes to fingertips. The famished wolf pack ringed him, but he didn't seem to fear as he pressed his ice-bond Bible to his lips. "'Twas the limit of my trap line with the cabin miles away, and every step was like a stab of pain. But I packed him like a baby, and I nursed him night and day till I got him back to health and strength again. So there we were, benighted in the shadow of the pole, and he might have proved a priceless little pard if he hadn't got to worrying about my blessed soul and a quoting me his Bible by the yard." Now there was I, a husky guy, whose God was nicotine, with a coffin nail, a fixture in my mug. I rolled them in the pages of a pulpwood magazine, and I hacked them with my jackknife from the plug for, oh, to know the bliss and glow that good tobacco means, just live among the everlasting ice. So judge my horror when I found my stock of magazines was chewed into a chowder by the mice. A woeful week went by, and not a single pill I had, me that would smoke my 40 in a day. I sighed, I swore, I strode the floor, I felt I would go mad. The gospel plugger watched me with dismay. My brow was wet, my teeth were set, my nerves were rasping raw, yet, and yet that preacher couldn't understand. So with despair I wrestled there when suddenly I saw the volume he was holding in his hand. Then something snapped inside my brain, and with an evil start, the wolfman in me woke to rabid rage. I saved your lousy life, says I, so show you have a heart and tear me out a solitary page. He shrank and shriveled at my words. His face went pewter white. Twas just as if I'd handed him a blow, and then, and then he seemed to swell and grow to heaven's height, and in a voice that rang, he answered, no. I grabbed my loaded rifle, and I jabbed it to his chest. Come on, you shrimp, give me that book. Says I, well, sir, he was a parson, but he stacked up with the best, and for grit, I got to hand it to the guy. If I should let you desecrate this holy word, he said, my soul would be eternally accursed. Not every preacher has the best theology, but we'll just continue. (laughs) So go on, Bill, I'm ready. You can pump me full of lead and take it. 
but you've got to kill me first. Now, I like that. Over my dead body. Now, I'm no foul assassin, though I'm full of sinful ways, and I knew right there the fellow had me beat, for I felt a yellow mongrel in the glory of his gaze, and I flung my foolish firearm at his feet. Then wearily I turned away and dropped upon my bunk, and there I lay and blubbered like a kid. Forgive me, pard, says I, for acting like a skunk, but hide the blasted rifle. And he did, which he did. And he also hid his Bible, which was maybe just as well, for the sight of all that paper gave me pain. And there were crimson moments when I felt I'd go to hell to have a single cigarette again. And so I lay day after day and brooded dark and deep until one night I thought I'd end it all. Then, rough, I roused the preacher where he stretched pretending sleep with his map of horror turned towards the wall. See here, my pious pal, says I, I've stood it long enough. Behold, I've mixed some strychnine in a cup, enough to kill a dozen men. Believe me, it's no bluff. Now watch me, for I'm going to drink it up. You've seen me bludgeoned by despair through bitter days and nights, and now you'll see me squirming as I die. You're not to blame. You've played the game according to your lights, but how would Christ have played it? Well, goodbye. <laughs> I love when uh, unbelievers argue, try to argue theologically with us. With that, I raised the deadly drink and laid it to my lips, but he was on me with a tiger bound. And as, he, as, he, as we locked and reeled and rocked with wild and wicked grips, the poison cup went crashing to the ground. Don't do it, Bill, he madly shrieked. Maybe I acted wrong. So he, see, here's my Bible. Use it as you will. But promise me you'll read a little as you go along. You do. Then take it, brother. Smoke your fill. And so I did. I smoked and smoked from Genesis to Job. And as I smoked, I read each blessed word. While in the shadow of his bunk, I heard him sigh and sob. And then a most peculiar thing occurred. I got to reading more and more and smoking less and less till just about the day his heart was broke. Says I, here, take it back, me lad. I've had enough, I guess. Your paper makes a mighty rotten smoke. <laughs> so then and there with plea and prayer, we, he wrestled for my soul and I was racked and ravaged by regrets. But God was good for lo, next day there came the police patrol with paper for a thousand <laughs> cigarettes. So now I'm called Salvation Bill. I teach the living law and ballyhoo the Bible with the best. That's my favorite line in the whole thing. Ballyhoo the Bible with the best. And if a guy won't listen, why? I sock him in the jaw and preach the gospel sitting on his chest. <laughs> the Ballad of Salvation Bill by Robert Service. In Isaiah chapter 24, there's an interesting theme that arises that you have to really work for to see it in the poetic structure of Isaiah 24. It's a very challenging passage, as we, as we said. And the theme is that uh, God's Word, God's Word is going to be, by His design, the only abiding source of joy for us. And if we reject the relationship you can have with God through His Word, then you're going to try to find your joy in somewhere else and something else. And there's coming a time in God's judgment on the earth dwellers, on planet earth called the tribulation, elsewhere, that um, God starts removing all those other sources and they don't really satisfy. And my prayer for you, believers in Christ, is that if you're trying to fill the void of a relationship with God and through his, through his word with anything else, that he goes ahead and does that for you, which is what we'll see in Isaiah 24, verses 1 through 20. The little apocalypse of Isaiah, as we said, this is uh, J. Alec Motyer's long outline of this whole section, and he sees it as center-seeking. And the reason I show you this is to show you that just reading through your Bible is a necessary task, but it's not the only task. 
There's a lot of study that goes into discerning what the author has done in his structure. And you can do that in any type of biblical literature. You can do it in narrative. You can do it in genealogy. You can do it in, um, in poetry, which is what Isaiah 24 through 27 is. It's very high uh, and elegant Hebrew poetry, which generally, as for just a summary, doesn't rhyme usually in what it sounds like, like Robert Service's rhyming final words in, 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 uh, in his verses. Hebrew poetry rhymes in thought. This thought is given in one expression, and then the next verse it'll say the same thought in another way as a synonym. And the, it's, a, it's a parallel, it's a, it's a rhyme, but it's in thought. And that kind of structure is what you see all through uh, this poetry, but it's not, it's not consistently all through. And sometimes he doesn't, uh, he doesn't rhyme, and you expect him to. And, um, and that's okay, because uh, it, it really makes it challenging. Some of the, the poetry in the Bible is pretty straightforward, pretty easy. A lot of the Psalms, you can kind of see line A, line B, line A, line B. It just kind of flows. And this passage is very challenging. So this is the big outline I want you to notice, as we said last time. The focus of the little apocalypse is, is, is Jerusalem, Mount Zion, in chapter 25, verses 6 through 12. The way Mottier saw it, and I think he's right. And, um, and a lot of work goes into validating this, and our goal tonight is just to dig into chapter 24 a little bit to see the structure there. Motyer gave a version of this outline, and I've modified it to suit what I understand from looking at it. It's my outline of chapter 24, verses 1 through 20, where you have on the outside a summary of God's coming devastation and a closing summary of that judgment in verses 1 through 3 and 18 through 20. That's the, that's the bookends that show you that this, these summary statements are pointing you to the center, which is no more singing if your joy is in the world, but abundant singing for the nations, the remnant of the nations, after God's wrath on the nations, for those who trust in God and pay attention to his word. The center in verses 7 through 12 and 13 through 16b. And so this, is, this structure, I think, is right about how um, Isaiah chapter 24, verse 1 through 20 works. And again, the center of this little chunk, this little 20-verse chunk, is that the singing and re- reveling in please yourself, satisfy yourself, disregard God is going to be silenced. And the earth will be destroyed, mostly, in this coming time of tribulation. It's the destruction of the, the place where the earth dwellers live. Because God is making war on the arrogant, but he's giving grace to the humble. And that's about as specific as you can pretty much get in Isaiah 24. The, the stuff Isaiah said in the 700s B.C. or late, late, early 600s B.C., the stuff Isaiah said there in that portion of history is pretty vague in general. And as God progressed the revelation, there is more and more specificity all the way to Revelation, the book of Revelation by John, the Apocalypse chapter 6 through 19, which really give you detail about some of these features. But if you read Revelation, if you've spent any time in the tribulation portion of Revelation, which is not a cyclic arrangement of just God wins over evil, but is a chronologically, generally chronological presentation of seven years that remain in Daniel's timeline for God's wrath on the nations, the wrath of the Lamb with the seals and uh, uh, bowls and trumpet judgments sequentially progressing through that seven-year period and all that's involved with Antichrist and his possession by Satan and all the, the things that Revelation teaches, they're all echoing what we have here, for example, what you have in Matthew 24 and 25 and Jesus' Olivet Discourse 
And so to do the exegesis or the actually teaching of what Isaiah says is not to do all the aggregate theology. That's not the same as exegesis to say, well, this is the tribulation and this is where Antichrist comes in and things like that, which Isaiah doesn't mention here. It's valuable after we've actually read what Isaiah says. But my goal with you, especially tonight and generally, is to let the author tell you what he's telling you and to understand it the way he says it. To do that, I have to specialize in Hebrew poetry. There's no way around it. And that's why you've never heard a whole lot of sermons on Isaiah and Jeremiah because they're extremely poetic and lamentations. You don't hear a lot of verse-by-verse preaching through these um, because, and and when you do, it's kind of like, huh. I'm not saying the preachers are off. I'm just saying unless you're actually dealing with it at the level of the poetry, the way he structured things like this, um, you're not getting what he's doing. And it's hard. And God, um, God says in Proverbs 25 too, that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, the glory of kings to search it out. So I'm inviting you to dig down a little bit to see if, if you see what I see. Like that uh, Christmas carol, do you see what I see <laughs> in this uh, in this poetic structure in Isaiah chapter 24. We read it in the New American Standard last time. I worked through a a translation of it. Now let me show you the analysis of the translation. The first little chunk is verses 1 through 3, the summary of this coming destruction that we call elsewhere the tribulation. I am identifying this with the future time of Jacob's trouble, the last week of Daniel uh, chapter 9 of the 70 weeks, the seven-year period of Revelation 6, 9, uh, chapter 6 through 19. I, behold, and, and I'm sorry that if the font's small for your eyes, but this is my translation of Isaiah 24, 1 through 20. Behold, the Lord will lay waste to the earth. And I put the color red generally through this signifies um, statements about judgment, laying waste, something like that, devastation. Behold, the Lord, that's Yahweh, will lay waste to the earth. And usually I put the earth in green because the earth part that he's talking about is not the water, it's the inhabitable land. And the word earth all through here is Eretz, unless he's He's rhyming with Eretz, with Tebel, the, the inhabited world. And Eretz either means land or it means the whole world of land mass we live on. And that would be the same thing God says in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the Shemayim and the Eretz, the earth. That's that word. That word is also used for the promise that God gives Abraham. He promises him a land. And it's a specific portion of the big land mass we live on. And so it's, as I've said, it's, it's got multiple uses, um, this word Eretz, but that's the word that's being used throughout Isaiah 24. I will lay waste to the earth and devastate it. You can see how those are parallel thoughts. I'll lay waste and I'll devastate. He will distort its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Now look at what's green, the earth, it, and the surface, and look at what's brown. Can you see brown? Kind of. Got to be careful with colors. The word inhabitants is in brown. This is a different category of things than the earth. This is the person that's living on it. These are the people who are given the stewardship of ruling in God's place over his land, over his creation. And that's the focus. Now notice how the theme throughout this is God is going to bring destruction to the earth because he's after the wickedness of the inhabitants. And it's a lot like Genesis 6. You have Jesus saying like in the days of Noah. And there's a lot of parallel between what God did with the earth in Genesis 6 and what he's going to do in the trib and, um, and in the final judgment. But um, he will distort its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it will be, that's Hayah in Hebrew, which a lot of times they won't translate 
but it's there. It will be, so it will come to pass. It will happen. Such will happen as the people, so the priest. As the servant, so his master. As the maid, so her mistress. As the buyer, so the seller, the lender, the borrower, the creditor, the debtor. Now, this is an interesting poetic structure that Isaiah did. And if I hadn't translated it in order, I couldn't have seen it. And if I hadn't looked at it 15 or 20 times, I also couldn't have seen it. But look what he does. He doesn't rhyme all these inhabitants of the earth. He doesn't, he, they're just all categories of inhabitants. But the first category is people and priest. That's its own category, people and the priest. People, in terms of spiritual things, as we said last time, are of a lower rank or authority than the priest. The priest is supposed to shepherd the people, and the people are supposed to have, they have to go to the priest, and they can't take, even the king in Saul's day couldn't take the prerogative of the priest on himself. So there's, an, there's a hierarchy established in the first one, but it's very clear in the second one. The servant to his master, the female servant to her female master, her mistress. And so we went from one set, the priest and the, and the, the, the rank and file Israelite, and then we went to the servants, male and servants, female, masters and mistresses. And that's two. So we went from one to two. And the next one goes to three in the financial world, the creditors and lenders. And that is what Isaiah did. And he counted to three. And that's just how he did it. And he's, he's aggregating. He's, he's doing all the people. And that's something that, and, and some of you are like, so what? And that's what Isaiah did. That's how he did the poetry. The priestly category, the, the, the economics, and then the borrowing and lending, the economics of who you're working for. As the buyer, so the seller. As the lender, so the borrower. As the creditor, so the debtor. And the three, the creditor-debtor group, does an inversion. Do you see the inversion? He goes from the lower rank to the higher rank in the first three. The buyer to the seller is an equation they're both in a transaction here where they're both in, in possession of their property, and then they do a transa- transaction based on you know, an understanding and, and their equal footing. But then the lender is higher than the borrower. The lender has the borrower in arrears and the creditor to the debtor. And I think this is a subtle way of doing what Isaiah has done in much more blunt terms throughout chapters 1 through 23 of saying that the, the least will be greatest and the greatest will be least. He's always bringing this theme of humbling. So you, you may be of a higher rank, but you're going to be just like everybody else. And it doesn't matter what order we go in because everybody's going to be screaming out to the rocks that fall on them in the tribulation. So that's what he does here in addressing its inhabitants. And notice that he launched. This is interesting, too. He does this a lot of times. He lights one birthday candle on another. And the inhabitants, okay, in verse 1, and then he starts talking about all the inhabitants in verse 2. He, he launches from this last thought of verse 1, and this is the last, last word in verse 1, to the topic of all the inhabitants. And I'll do that throughout the, the, the poem if, if I don't remember to, to show it. At least I could show you there. And then you have bookends. You see how red, brown, red? Can't see the brown. The middle's brown, and then it goes to red or orange. Got to be careful with these. I remember, color-coding things is, is a challenging thing with computers. Up here, it's very clear and obvious, but for you, it's, it's not as, as obvious. Okay. Verse 1 is about a general summary of destruction, and so is verse 3. The earth will be absolutely devastated and thoroughly plundered. And that, remember, that's a doubling of the verbs, the word for devastate and to plunder. These are doubled 
because it's saying, you know, really bad. A lot of these, this is going to happen. So absolutely plundered. Not devastating, it'll be devastated. That's not the translation. It's just saying it'll be thoroughly devastated. It'll be thoroughly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. And that's going to be thematic. The Lord has spoken this word. When God finally gets to his charge against the earth dwellers and why he's going to bring a worldwide destruction that we read later on will be described as seals and bowls and trumpet judgments on the earth dwellers. When, when this happens, you have to say, um, when, when God brings his judgment, you have to notice that it's going to be about the rejection of a relationship with God, which can only be had through his revelation, through his word. You can't relate to God without knowing him. You can't know him without him revealing himself. That's the word of God. And we'll see that in just a moment. So this is your summary of the coming destruction by that outline. And we already have some concepts that we've, we've surfaced that I want to kind of highlight. First is the connection between mankind and the earth. He's talking about bringing destruction on the world. He's not angry at the planet earth. Romans 8 tells us the earth was subjected to corruption, not willingly, but by him who subjected it in hope. The earth is not a personal thing, but it is the locus of the, cur- the curse of the ground because of the curse on the mankind. There is a connection between us and the inhabited earth by God's design, according to his word in Genesis 1, and 28, is a stewardship that God has entrusted to man, a stewardship. And when I say stewardship, I want you to hear me very carefully. I do not mean ecological movement. I don't mean anything to do with with the green piece or any of that stuff. I'm not talking about clean air, though I like it. I'm not talking about whether there's a fertilizer or no fertilizer in the soil. I, and I have an opinion about that. But that's not what I mean by stewardship. I mean, these are possible detailed ramifications of this down the line. I mean something far more fundamental, far more basic about the fact that God made it and, gave, and made us and gave it to us. I mean that divine institution number one, the capacity to make your choices, to please God, to serve him, is, uh, is not all there is to divine institution number one. Everything that you have by God's design is something that you and I should be using to glorify him with. These are all, these are all fodder. They're all ammunition for our worship. And that's what a stewardship from God looks like. When he delegates something to you, it's something to throw at his feet in worship. When he gives you a crown, you cast it at his feet. It's something to honor him with. That's what biblical stewardship looks like. When he entrusts something to me in the pattern of Jesus in John 17, it is equipping me to glorify him with that thing. And so we're not talking about whether the air is clean as the primary consideration. That's something discussed later and connected back to does it honor him? And this is why you can't go with the green movement. This is why you can't agree with this because for them, there is a pagan undertone of the earth being the object of the worship. But the earth is not the object of the worship. God is the object of our worship and the earth is that which we use to worship God with in our productivity, and our taking what he's given us in terms of raw materials, which we can't make, and the creativity which he's given us as his image bearers, and we manage that raw material to his glory, and that's what the revolutions in science have always been about. That's why Newton has uh, discovered calculus and, and calculated gravity and all that Newton was able to do because he's worshiping the creator as he understands him from his uh, investigations into God's revelation. So we have a very close connection between the earth 
and mankind from the very beginning of the creation of the earth. Day six, God makes man and says, this is yours, you tend it. And, and uh, some would say perhaps in their development of theology, well, that's true, but in Genesis 3, man fell and he submitted himself to the creature instead of to God as he does with the serpent. And so he loses that delegation. You can say that, but you have to keep reading because in the Noahic covenant, when God establishes his covenant between himself and mankind and all the animals and the whole planet, the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9, he says that he wants them to go subdue and reign. He continues that stewardship, that delegation. And um, I'm, I'm all done with sociology. There, there's no way to make aggregate populations do that. The only way this works is you and me right now, is that I commit to God to be about what he's entrusted to me and, and give it to him and trust him with it and live my life to please him. And you doing that and you doing that and, you do, and then you get an aggregation and then all of a sudden that's what, that's what you've seen in our history. That's what there was here for a time. The great American poet, to quote, to quote out of context, the great American poet Edgar Allan Poe, nevermore. <laughs> the destruction of the earth, as prophesied in verse 1 through 3, is God's method of destroying man's moral corruption. That's really important to get. That, that the, 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 the cataclysm on planet earth is not just because of the earth. It's because of man who's living there. And this is God taking out man. And he's going to accept a small remnant of human beings. God's method of destroying man's moral corruption. And God's version of equal opportunity in this passage is that socioeconomic rank means nothing. Not to him. Whether you're a slave, a male slave, a servant, or, you have, or the master, or you're the female servant, or the mistress, doesn't matter to God. Footnote there is the book of Philemon. Read that when you read Colossians. And all that Paul says about the Holy Spirit working in believers, whether they're slave or free. The question is, do you have access to God's word? And this is the question of our scale of values. What do you really value? And what's the priority? We say education, it's going to solve the problems. It's not. The problem education solves is that you can't read God's word, and then after a process of literacy, you can read God's word. And the, the further problem it solves is that you don't know how to understand things, and you come to be able to understand things because you're cultivating that mind. And that's the, pro, that's the problem education solves is that you go from ignorance to knowing something. And the question is, do you really know something after an educational process? Because if you don't know it connected to the creator in uh, Proverbs 1-7, you don't know anything. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And we do teach Hebrew classes and Greek classes here at times, and you're welcome to, to dig down and connect <laughs> the original languages to the things that you understand because there is a connection. Everything that we know connects to the Creator, and He has an opinion about it. It's magnificent. What happened yesterday at the White House, for example? There's lots of biblical revelation in English, Bibles, translations, also in the original languages you can find a lot of information about the things being celebrated at the highest levels of our government. As we're told that this is the first step. These are, these are early steps towards real equality. I'm reading about the consequence of this equality in Isaiah 24. 
that this is where the world is tending and this is where the earth dwellers are going to be in their rebellion against the creator and he's going to destroy where they live and so them. And that's coming. And it's horrible to contemplate, but it's coming. The whole matter is this. Will you be God's steward with what he has entrusted to you? Will you be his steward with what he's entrusted to you? And that's the challenge and application of so much of Isaiah. And that's a question of humility. Can you say, God, the giver of life and the securer of all the real wealth is really God? Can you say, since I'm not, I better get with him and be about what he's about? Those of you who are young and concerned about money, remember Jesus who knows everything and has, he is the heir to inherit all things. Nobody knows money, including Solomon, like Jesus. He says in Matthew 6 that you better figure out where to put your wealth. Figure out what bank to put it in because if you're like the world, you're putting it in a bank that's going to the bottom of the sea or it's going to all melt. Put it in heaven, in God's heavenly treasury where moth and rust can't destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. This is a totally radically different way of thinking about life and the things of life than what you'll see in the world. But it's so freeing and enriching. Now my property, now my life, my time, my energy is not about me pleasing me. I just help people because it makes me feel good. It's not even about you pleasing yourself that way. Although I'm glad that you've discovered that part of bearing God's image that does feel good to help people. But that's not the primary mission. It's to please God. That's our ambition in 2 Corinthians 5. All right, back to our passage in verses 4 through 6. You have the moral cause and the disastrous effects. And this is how it works. It's effect, cause, effect, meaning we're focused in on the effect in the center, which will be moral, and the, the, I'm sorry, the cause is in the center, and the effects are on the outside. So he says, it dries up, it withers, comma, the earth. Subject follows verb in the passage, and that's off-putting. You can read it in an English translation, cleans it up. But I'm putting it in Hebrew order because something's happening with the way he structures it. Watch. It fades, it withers, the tevel, the inhabited world. They fade, the exalted people of the earth. You can see green and the red-brown color, right? So one of these, as we used to say at West Point, one of these cadets is not like the others. Somebody forgot their belt or something, you know, you line up for inspection and somebody had something missing. Of the three things, verb follows by subject, yes? The three verbs, dries up, withers, fades, withers, fade, it's all the same topic that is happening. But the first two are referencing the physical earth. The last one is talking about the people that live there. This is why I'm emphasizing the theme of man and and nature, man and the earth, because he keeps doing this. So not only will the inhabited world kind of dry up and fade out, but the people will too, to the God's glory. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I don't want this to happen to people. But this is where history is tending. The earth is polluted beneath, not by its inhabitants. It actually says tahat, underneath its inhabitants. 
meaning your physical presence on the land with your wicked practices is polluting the, the planet. And it has nothing to do with coatings, industrial coatings that have been put into the rivers and poisoned the fish, although that's really horrible. It's not even talking about that. The pollution here is the moral corruption of God's creation by our bad, sinful choices. That's what he's talking about. The earth, Eretz, is polluted. Now he switches the order, subject, followed by verb, to grab your attention because he's going to now talk about the cause. We had the effect. For they passed over Torah, Torot. They've passed over the laws. The word Passover is an interesting use here because this is the word for the Passover right before receiving the law for the Exodus generation of R. But this is used here for them dodging the law. They passed over the laws. They blew past a, another rare word that parallel to Passover. They blew past statute. They broke the eternal covenant. This is the word of God. Laws and statutes, and God's with the earth, Noahic covenant, and the question of eternal is an interesting thing with Olam. We have in the book of Hebrews that the Mosaic covenant is the old covenant. The new covenant makes the old covenant obsolete, according to the book of Hebrews. And so what is the, old, the eternal covenant? I don't take this to be a made-up covenant that theologians have concluded for, they just grab a random verse here and say, oh, this is the covenant of grace or the covenant of works. I don't think that works. But what I do believe is that in a general sense um, that God has established a, a, a deal with mankind and man says no. And that is exactly what Genesis 9 is. And that's exactly what happened in Genesis 11 that they said no to God's ghost of due and reign with the Noahic covenant. However you conclude this covenant, it is a matter of God's revelation to man of how he wants us to deal with him. In Isaiah's day, that was at Mount Sinai. In our day, that is according to the apostles and prophets built on what the prophets of the Old Testament had said. And so this is, I want you to notice, in blue up there is God's word. Laws, statutes, and the eternal covenant are references to God's self-disclosure. And when God says, this is what I want, and man says, I hear what you're saying, but I, I just... I just can't listen. I'm sorry, I've got work to do. When we say, I know that someone is up there speaking God's word, but I might as well be Charlie Brown. I'm not listening to God's word. When we disregard what the creator has to say, then we're guaranteed not to have a relationship with him. And that looks like this. It's blowing past statute. It's passing over God's, God's instruction or his laws. That is breaking the eternal covenant. Therefore, a curse will devour the earth. The therefore, you got to always ask what it's there for. This is the effect. Notice we had the, the imagery of drying up and withering the planet and the, the inhabitants. And then the moral charge that God brings is that they had rejected God's word and therefore the relationship that the word was designed to secure. Therefore, a curse will devour the earth. I put red there with the curse devouring because it's a judgment, a powerful kinetic judgment statement. They're guilty, those who dwell on it. Notice the earth and those who dwell on it. The curse is going to devour the earth. The, the moral issue for those that live there is now highlighted again. Therefore, they will diminish in number those who dwell on the earth. Keeps talking about this category, the earth dwellers. 
worst decision on coloring ever made in any time preaching teaching scenario I've ever done where you can't really tell red from brown up there on the screen. It's hilarious because it keeps doing it. The, the, the harsh statements of judgment and those that receive it, those who dwell on the earth. We need to do an excursus after Isaiah 24 through 27 on the entire Bible on the earth dwellers. But I'm of the school of thought. I learned this from Tommy Ice and the Pre-Trib Research Study Group. I'm of the school of thought that the word earth dwellers in the book of Revelation is a reference to unbelief. It's a reference to those for whom God's judgment and wrath is reserved who are going to encounter God's wrath in the coming time of Jacob's trouble called the tribulation. And this is what will happen. The curse will devour the earth. They're guilty, those who dwell on it. Therefore, they'll diminish in number, those who dwell on the earth. And there will remain a very few men. So this is the picture you have of almost the entire population of the world being taken out in various acts of divine judgment. And so if you have this as your prior context, and then you have in the outline of Revelation 119, show the things that will be, that will soon take place. And it says that there are these sequential judgments of earthquakes and catastrophic events that take out massive chunks of the world population. It sounds exactly like what Isaiah is talking about. That's why they call 24 through 27 the mini-revelation, the mini-apocalypse. Now, for, the, for an imaginary Coke, because I know you don't you know, put the, those carcinogens in your body. Um, for imaginary Coke, can anybody tell me what the word apocalypse means? Well, I... Nobody knows what the word apocalypse means. Of course, you, some of you are like, I know, but I'm not going to say because I'm waiting for the young people. Does anyone who is an actual young person, not young at heart, does anyone know what the word apocalypse means? You can't be, you got to be under 30 to give the answer. Okay, what if I say it in Greek and say apocalypsis? Or in modern Greek, we call it apocalypsis. Because they transpose, everything's an E sound now. All the vowels, they don't have U anymore. It's the name of the book of Revelation. It's what the actual book is called. That's the last book of the Bible. Real quick, if you're going to be biblical on your eschatology, on your end time stuff, don't, please don't become a prophecy sensationalist. Become a prophecy student. So much of the Bible is prophecy and so much of the biblical prophecy hasn't been fulfilled yet, and we should be looking for what God said. But apocalypse, apocalypsis means revelation. That's all it means. It means that I didn't know something. It was behind a curtain, and then God revealed. He opened the curtain, and now we know. That's what it means. It means revelation. It doesn't mean a virus causes dead people to rise up, even though they're still rotting corpses, and then try to bite people. That's the zombie apocalypse, but that has nothing to do with the biblical testimony. But it does make for a lot of pop culture of our time, which is it not just us talking about ourselves very somehow. Anyway, um, <laughs> as people are dead inside and they want to make other people dead inside by sharing their death with others. Self-own, that's what we're doing. That's not cell phone, that's self-own. Um, and the, the word apocalypse means revelation. So, so that's what you're seeing is a mini revelation, mini book of revelation, because it's describing the events in a general term, in a very poetic way, of the book of Revelation. Now, um, you might have heard people say, man, it's really hard to study the book of Revelation. 
And I understand what you mean. There are many symbols and they have to be interpreted. There are many things like, what sense does he mean this? There have been all kinds of theories about how to do it. The day-age theory, which is garbage, and all kinds of things that have been, I don't mean that pejoratively, you're a day-age person. I didn't mean to call your idea garbage, but it is. Um, <laughs> the, the, the various ways people have understood it, but I want to say the book of Revelation is much easier and much more accessible than the difficult poetry of Isaiah 24. But it's worth it to go through this because it's God's word. And you just have to decide, do you love it? I decided up front I loved it. And then I studied in Hebrew and I was like, oh, that was a good good choice. All right, so we'll continue with the translation. We notice in the middle of this little structure in verses 4 through 6, you have the cause, the moral cause for God's wrath that we see. And some more concepts. Let's talk about this conceptually. God has revealed himself with the statutes and laws and the covenant so that man may have a relationship with him. That's the deal. That whole word covenant means that there's two parties and there are expectations. Like any relationship. Oh, I don't have any commitments to you. There are commitments between two people that are encountering one another. There is an expectation of a modest level of, of uh, politeness. There's man- there are manners, as we say. There are uh, right ways of dealing with various levels of intimacy that you might have with someone where you go from uh, somebody that you barely know, there's a right way to behave toward that person. There's a protocol for it. And it's both parties are responsible. And the closer you get to someone, the more necessary it becomes all the way to the point of what you're thinking of, which is if mom expects you to be at dinner and she made you dinner, you better be there or find a way to explain it before too late. Right? What do you think I was going to say? But, that's, but see, there are, there are protocols for relationships. And God has revealed himself. There's a protocol for relating to him. And it's through his word. And if we deny it, if we reject it, we're denying the relationship. The rejection of God's self-revelation or God's word is the rejection of the most important relationship there can be. And that's the problem. I love God, but I don't love his word. You don't love God. You don't know God because we come to know him through his word. No, no, my parents told me. There's no grandparent thing here. You can't borrow, you can't draft off your parents' spiritual life. You're not skiing behind them. You might feel like you are, but you're just lagging and you're atrophying and you're wasting opportunity. You're not growing. You're stunting your spiritual growth. The rejection of God's self-revelation is the rejection of the most important relationship. And the earth dwellers are the people who have rejected this relationship. That's what he's talking about. He's not bringing his wrath on people that are just looking for God. He's bringing his wrath on people who have said, I don't want to know. I don't know him. And if I did know him, I would hate him. So much of apologetics is really not helping someone intellectually grasp the notion that there is a God and it makes sense. So much of it is uncovering the fact that the person has a prior commitment of an antipathy toward God. Or as we'd say, just ask the question, why do you hate God? If the debate goes long enough, you probably can ask that question at some point and they will answer it. The earth dwellers are, are the people who have rejected the relationship because we t- were told in the past that they rejected the revelation. Do you want the relationship with God that God is offering you? I didn't say the relationship that gets you what you think you want because you think you know because you don't. I said, do you want the relationship with God that God is offering? And I'd love to go over a whole theology now with you of wanting. Know what I mean? Wanting is one of my favorite words. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want or suffer lack. 
But God's will so often expressed in the New Testament is really what God prefers or wants. And this is so important to your life and my life. Not as I will, but your will be done. Why do I want God to have his way no matter what? Three reasons. He's infinitely righteous, so his way is always going to be the right one. He's infinitely knowledgeable. He is omniscient, so he knows the consequences of me getting my way that's different from him. He knows the consequences of him not getting his way that is different from me. And he knows all the knowable, and he knows the best course. And you put that together with righteousness, and wow, it's going to be absolutely certain that we get the right way. But then there's the third one that you might be wondering about. Yeah, it's the best way, and it's the right way, but what about, hey, God wants the very highest and best for you. It's his love. He's omnibenevolent. He is love itself. He is, God is called love. I don't mean that love is God. Don't misunderstand. I mean that you can't divorce God from his loving quality, his loving character. And so the cross is a demonstration of the love of God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the greatest demonstration of God's love. Never forget the love of God for you. And if that's true, if God is all-knowing and all-righteous and infinitely loving, then what he wants, you better believe, is better than you can imagine, better for you than your idea. And that's the theology of wanting. I need to train myself, and I need God to work in me to want what he wants, even when I don't know what that is, because I know him. And what he wants for you, we've got all through the scriptures. That's what the Bible is. So do you want the relationship with God that he's offering you? then what must be your response to his word if you want that relationship? What is the only right response to his word? Well, I promise you it's not to ignore it, but that's where Christendom is. We ignore God's word. For example, this seems like a really lot, it's a lot of poetry. It's hard. Nobody wants to dig out the Hebrew poetry except nerds, Hebrew poetry nerds. I'm not trying to start a Hebrew poetry fan club here. I'm just talking to Christians about God's word. Makes us a Hebrew poetry fan club in a way, but it's not my goal. What's the response? You can't be ignoring it. Got to hear it. Got to pay attention. God, help me love it. If you're struggling with that, if you feel like, I know, I know what it is. I know that God's word is, is what he wants me to know. I know it's a self-revelation, but I just don't feel like it from, from time to time. Hey, that's your prayer time right there. God, I don't, I don't want this, but I want to want it. Help me. Get some Philippians 2, 12 and 13 going there. What must be your response? You got to hear it and do it. If you really want the relationship God's calling you to, what a great thing. Back to my little outline of this chunk in chapter um, 24, verses 1 through 20. We'll get through C prime, or C, C number 1. The song stilled in the city of chaos is what I'm calling this. And so the imagery changes from an, the image in chapter uh, 20, 24, verse 4, of, of the drying out and the fading out to the removal of the wine. The wine goes empty and no more instruments and no more party. The party is taken down. You're like, yeah, there's not going to be much of a party if we're all under uh, attack, if we're all being destroyed. But the song of the stilled city of chaos is verses 7 through 12. Uh, The song stilled in the city of chaos, sorry. The song stilled in the city of chaos is quieted. Starts off with the verb first. It mourns. What mourns? The new wine. Which we would, you would use for the party. It fades. What, what fades? The vine. I put those in pink because I'm trying to reserve purple through here for, for Yahweh. So pink is, is wine. 
it fades, the vine. Can you see pink? Oh, that looks kind of wine-colored, okay, on the screen. They groan, or they sigh, all the merry of heart. I hope this echoes something that you've already seen tonight. Look at, look at what's up on the screen. Verb, subject, verb, subject, verb, subject. Wine, wine, people drinking wine. The third one is the focus. It's the thing that he's talking about. It's the earth dwellers. It's the focus thing. And that's, that's the poetic sort of punch he's doing. And that's, that's, that's important the way he's structured it. So verse 4 is parallel to verse 7, the way he structured things. And he does it again in verse 8. It has ceased the joy of the tambourines. Verb, it has ceased. What ceased? The joy of the tambourines. What is joyful about tambourines? Well, they're having a party. They want a little music so they can enjoy their, their, their beverages. That's what's going on. The joy of the tambourines has ceased. It has stopped, another word for ceasing, the noise of the exultant. And it has ceased the joy of the harp. So I hope that you can see what I see there as I see six lines of poetry. And I see that the first two are wine and then people. And in the second three, it's musical instrument, people celebrating with music, then musical instrument. You see the theme? So he, he did it twice, and the second time he changed the order. Here we got people in the second one, not the third one. And that inversion is called chiasm, and it focuses on the exultant one. What are we saying? You've got people, not an earth here, but people and the various diversions they have to entertain themselves. We're not going to be entertained or should say focused on God. We're not going to be relating to him through his word. So we've got to fill the void with something. So we're going to stimulate ourselves. And that's what you have here. With song, they will not drink wine. It will be bitter beer to those who drink it. This is a challenging parallel. But I put the drinking of beer and drinking of wine parallel to each other. I think that's what, it, what he's doing in verse 9. And so the first three, the wine goes away. It mourns and it fades. And therefore, the people that would want to drink it are sighing. The people that want to make revel, make party, uh, have a party with music, their noise is gone. The noise of the exultant. So back to the people. And these two things are drawing our attention to the object of God's wrath. He's not angry at planet Earth, but planet Earth's purpose is for man to relate to God with. And man not relating to God is going to be destroyed by the destruction of planet Earth. Verse 10, continuing this chunk of 7 through 12. Verb first, it is broken. What is the city, the ear of Tohu? Tohu is a word that shows up in Genesis 1-2 and a couple other places. Isaiah 45 has a reference to Tohu. He didn't create the world to be a Tohu, not the purpose of God. They would be in chaos. And we think this word means chaos or disarray. And that's the name of this. I'm calling it a name. I think he's naming this city of rebellion against God. It's broken. It has been shut up every house from going in. An outcry concerning the wine in the streets. It has darkened all joy. It has banished from joy the earth. It is left in the city desolation. It ruins and ruins crushed to pieces is the gate. So you have, notice, red and black on the outside in verse 10 and 12. 
and then blue and black on the inside. And I think that's an intentional little mini chiastic arrangement he did. But the focus here on is the summary that God is bringing destruction on, uh, on the earth dwellers. And he's shutting down all of their access, all of the ways they might, we might satisfy ourselves. They're all none of, to no avail. And this is so important throughout all of Isaiah. They've gone to Egypt. They've gone to see if they could appease Assyria. They've tried everything. We're going to do the Syro-Ephraimite alliance. There's all the political stuff on the street in Jerusalem in Isaiah's day where they've tried to, to find any possible way to deal with the Assyrian threat, which is the big problem in Isaiah's ministry, the Assyrian crisis. But the problem was never Assyria, and you were never going to solve the Assyrian crisis with these other nations. The problem was always that God had raised the Assyrians to go destroy Jerusalem because they were rebellious and idolatrous. In other words, their problem was with God. That's always the problem. And if you've got a problem and it's not with God, it's not really a problem, eternally speaking. It's not really a problem in the big picture. And that's how that applies. And I know you've got problems, but I'm just saying the, the problem isn't going to change, but as our perspective expands, we think of our salvation and our creator and all that he's revealed to us, we can put that into its proper place. Again, it's very challenging poetry, but I think by the time we get to verse 10, we're talking about um, the, the, the utter ruin of mankind in his rebellion against God by ignoring his word. The utter ruin of a city of Tohu. It's broken down. It has no, no future. Every house, you can't go into it. It's all boarded up. And the outcry concerning the wine in the streets is interesting because it seems to rhyme with before the revelry, the exultation of those who are making noise in the street. That's why I colored it blue. I think it's a callback to verse 8. I think he's borrowing that theme again. All the joy is darkened. It's banished from joy of the earth because you didn't get it from God, so you're not going to have it in these other sources, which is my consistent prayer for all of you this side of the tribulation. I heard one, one, somebody once said, you're pre-trib, so you think that the church, we aren't going to go through the tribulation, and I don't like that. One of the objections I get to pre-trib theology, or I like to say Pauline theology about the tribulation, um, or New Testament theology the reason that we don't like it is a theological problem. We say, well, you're trying to dodge the trouble, but God said we would have tribulation. Jesus said we would go through tribulation. And after reading a little bit of church history, you don't have to read very much to say we are in tribulation, and we have been. But it's not the wrath of God for the earth dwellers that's coming on the whole human race where it almost destroys everybody, except for a small remnant of humans from the nations. That's where we're going to um, next time when we continue. No, I, I don't think that we're dodging suffering. I think that the tribulation is a specific event that is, that is categorized biblically. It's, it's grounded in it's God's description of it. And listen to what he's saying about the people for whom it's reserved. They've rejected God. They've rejected a relationship with God. They've rejected God's revelation. As you believers do that because you're inclined to be distracted by the world or whatever other challenge that John is getting after you about in 1 John chapter 2, you young men, I write to you because you've overcome the world. And then he writes to you about being overcomers. <laughs> it says, positionally you've overcome, now you need to live it out. And that's, that's 1 John, walk in fellowship with God. Yeah, I pray that anything you seek to find your joy in, as your pastor, this is my love for you, Anything you want 
to rejoice in to the exclusion of your creator, that God makes that a, 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 a poison well, that he, that he take that away because, because it does you no good to find joy there because it's really not life. It's death. Well, I was ready to do all of verses 1 through 20, but uh, we're out of time as, as, as we can be sometimes. Let's finish verse 12. On enjoyment, we find various ways to find various sources of new wine and uh, the, the joy of the tambourine. We find all kinds of interesting ways to divert our attention. Hobbies, interests, diversions. And I'm not talking about Hebrew poetry, Hebrew Poetry Club. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you can't actually, you can make that a, a, a misaligned thing to, to get it. A lot of Hebrew scholars are. They're not getting the benefit of the relationship with God from it because they don't believe in him. I, I never understood the Hebrew scholar that doesn't believe in Christ or doesn't believe the words that he's studying. But we find various ways to enjoy ourselves. And uh, I'm on the Luther side of this, not the Calvin side. You know, the Reformation summary. Um, Calvin was a little bit more restrictive, I guess. I think Calvin's summary was if God's word doesn't um, uh, permit it, then it's forbidden is kind of the way that's summarized. And Luther was more of the Germanic, not as, not as Switzerland, more Germanic. Um, Jean Calvin was, uh, wrote some of his stuff in French, and, but not in German. So uh, Luther said that more his, his, the, the theme there is more, like I don't have a quote for you, but if, if God's word doesn't forbid it, then it's more likely permitted. And so I'm more free about things um, than um, you know, scared of my shadow because I'm walking in, the, in new life and there's no legislation against the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm not telling you you're going to be libertines. I'm just saying um, we're not living for rules our rule of life is the walk by the Holy Spirit according to God's word. And that's a vastly different thing. And so what I'm trying to tell you is that there's nothing inherently wrong with all kinds of things. There's nothing wrong with tambourines or new wine. Unless you've got problems with addiction issues with those things that you, that you can't deal with that. But I'm saying there's nothing inherently evil about these things. These things are commanded of Israel for worship of him. All of it commanded in, in their various feasts. But we find various ways. But our design and purpose is to enjoy God. And that is the conscience part that we need to come back to. If you don't have this, beloved, you need this. If you haven't experienced this, you're missing the whole thing. Your whole purpose is to enjoy God. So in rejection of God, we use the various stimulants of this earth to anesthetize our conscience about the design and purpose that we all inherently know. He's placed in eternity in our hearts. And this is very important for you who are like, get this, and you're like, amen section, I know this is true. You people that come on a Wednesday night in the cold, okay? This is an encouragement for your equipping others. The people you're dealing with, they don't get this. They don't live this way. Most people don't. We do sometimes, and we know if, you've, if you know, you know, right? So, hey, maybe your problem that you're struggling with, part of it is that you've got a design, and it's to honor God and to enjoy Him, and you have no idea what that is. You have no experience with that. And God's coming judgment on the earth dwellers, the anesthesia is not going to help. There is going to be no, no uh, tambourine. There is going to be no rejoicing. They're going to be running into the hills, telling the caves to fall on them. It's horrible. 
The city of chaos, the city of Tohu, represents man's quest to find satisfaction without the personal relationship for which we're designed. I don't think it means Jerusalem. I don't think that's what he's saying. I I think he's saying there's a a way of life that is going to get you uh, the lot of the earth dweller. You don't want to be these people. You want your citizenship in heaven. But joy is coming for creation after judgment, and that's where uh, we pick up next time. When we look at the second half of the middle, verses 13 through 16b, the song man was meant to sing, glory and exaltation to God. And there is that ray of light. This isn't prophets of doom and destruction. This is prophets of doom and deliverance. And uh, there is the ray of light that's coming when we get to, um, to verse 13 next time. Our Father, thank you so much for the awesome beauty of the book of Isaiah and the challenge it poses to us. Father, we got ahead of steam and we had to shut down in the middle of the, the, the section here. I pray that you build us up that, that, that head of steam to tackle it again. Um, but help us res- ruminate on these things that we can receive joy in your design right now by laying hold of your word, by paying attention to who you are, by asking you for it. Father, if there are any here who don't know Jesus as Savior, we pray for their eternal life, that they would consider Christ his offer of eternal life simply by trusting in him that he died for their sins and rose from the dead, that there's nothing they can do in themselves to please you because they're broken and lost and there is no recovery from sin except the cross, but that Jesus paid it all. They would consider him. Father, bring people to us in our lives and make us equipped in the moment to share the life that you've given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.